Would you take your copy of the Scripture and open it and find your way to John chapter 12 this morning? If you'd join me in John chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 20 through 50 is the goal. It may stop at 36. Uh, We'll just see how things go. Jesus has been anointed for his burial, according to the earlier parts of John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. He then entered the city of Jerusalem during a time of high feasts of Passover. Millions of Jews were flocking to celebrate this great season and occasion where God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. It was ever a a beacon of hope that their God was indeed the true and living God, and also in their current context as being subjugated by Rome, and before Rome, the Greeks and the Syrians, and before that, the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians, and before that, the Assyrians. These people had suffered long, long time, and They were hopeful that one day a great salvation would come. And so when they hear that Jesus is coming, they believe that he is the Messiah they have been waiting for. And they've merged all their political aspirations, all their nationalistic hopes. They pinned them all on this miracle-working carpenter who proved himself to be a great prophet and teacher. And so as we see in verses 12 through 16, he comes into the city to the accolades of the crowds And we see that there's two different groups that are there witnessing this. There are the people who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. And there are the people who heard that Jesus had raised Lazarus. And they wanted to see this miracle worker. And so we find ourselves this morning looking at the section of Scripture where some Greeks approach Jesus. Ask for an audience with him. And here in this passage of John chapter 12, Jesus's, or John's tone shifts from celebration of Jesus coming into the city to somberness. You see, the Greeks' interest in Jesus flips a switch in Jesus' mind. It, it's, it's after this moment that he declares that his hour has come. And then he makes an appeal for true followers who are also willing to lay down their lives for the Father. The British politician and statesman Winston Churchill once said, Now this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end. But it is perhaps the end of the beginning. And that's a fitting title for our sermon this morning. So as we look at these verses, particularly verses 20 through 36, we see the beginning of the end of the beginning. Jesus Follow along as I read, and we'll hear directly from the Scriptures, beginning in John chapter 12 and verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. 
And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. We're told the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, This voice has not has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and abandoned their, and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to serve the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, and our prayer is that he would write these truths upon all our hearts. Lord, we simply do ask that. Teach us what it means to know you and to believe in you. Teach us what it means to follow you and to walk in the light rather than in the darkness. Teach us 
the nature of your cross and the self-denial that accompanies it. And Lord, we are mindful that even as we gather together in safety today, that this is a day of national prayer for the persecuted church. And so we pray for all those Christians, whether they are in Russia, Ukraine, China, North Korea, Israel, Gaza Strip, wherever suffering is taking place for your people, Lord, we pray that you would give them the strength to believe in you, even if that leads to suffering for the name. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. There's three movements in verses 20 through 36 that I want us to see this morning. Verses 20 and 22 show us that the gospel is for the nations. We see that as these Greeks come to Jesus. Now, that's unusual because it's one of the few times in the gospel that anyone outside of being a Jew is interested in Jesus. Uh, with the exception of a centurion and those that come to him for healing's sake. But there's a curiosity here that shows us that the gospel is for the nations, and now the Son of Man is drawing people outside of Judaism, outside of Israel, to himself. A second movement we see is Jesus' call for true followers. We see the gospel is for the nations in verses 20 and 22, We see Jesus makes a call for true followers in verses 23 through 36. And then we are given the very definition of Jesus' hour. What is the, we're told in verses 27 through 36, the purpose of Jesus' hour. The purpose of Jesus' hour. So let's walk through these in our time together this morning, as we look at verses 20 through 22, we see that their presence has indicated to Jesus that his hour of glorification has come. Who were these guys? Why did they approach Philip and not Jesus directly? And why were they interested in Jesus? After all, they were Greeks. And why did Philip, instead of going to Jesus first, go and talk to Andrew? There's a lot of questions that we have here, and and our curiosity from the Bible is endless. You know, there, you read something and you just wonder why. And sometimes we're told, but it doesn't always scratch our itch. And so I've got to disappoint you this morning. There's not a lot that we can speak to this about. Um, the Bible's more concerned with exalting Christ than it is our, satisfying our curiosity. But there are some details that we can draw from. The best understanding is that they were real Gentiles. They were not Hellenized or Jews. That means they weren't Jews who had adopted the culture of the Greeks. These were real Greeks. And the fact that they came to Philip seems to indicate that uh, in a predominantly Jewish context, Philip, although he's a Jew, has a Greek name. He's not called Abraham Goldberg. He's not called uh, Samuel or something like that. He's got a Greek name. And he's from a heavily Greek-influenced part of Galilee in Bethsaida. And so in a culture where religion and race matter, if you want to get to someone, you're going to tap the people around them who you have something in common with. That's your foot in the door. And so I think that's what's going on here. They know a little bit. They've done some homework, and they're interested in getting to Jesus, and Philip is the doorway to it. And Andrew's included in this because we see several times in the Gospel of John that Andrew is noted as someone who brings people to Jesus. 
It's just, just kind of, he's the good old boy that just wants people to know Jesus. And so this, is, this leads us to the question of why did they want to see Jesus? And there's a lot of speculation here. It could simply be because the buzz in Jerusalem was so overwhelmingly talking about Jesus. If there would have been X back then, for those of you that don't know, X is formerly known as Twitter. If there was, if there was a Twitter back then, everybody's servers would have gone down with the buzz about Jesus. So maybe it's just curiosity. What is this all about? Or maybe it's because they saw Jesus. John puts the cleansing of the temple very early in his gospel. The other gospel writers put it right when, right after Jesus come into Jerusalem on this last Passover day. And so maybe these Greeks who were interested had become proselytes to Judaism. They were there and they watched Jesus take the place that was so noisy and chaotic the only place they were allowed to enter uh, on the temple grounds. And that was supposed to be their prayer space. And it had been filled with selling of animals, the exchange of currency, commerce, and noise and chaos. And they saw Jesus wipe that place clean and restore it to a, a, a place of prayer. Maybe that's why they're interested in Jesus. This is the first guy they've ever seen that has an interest, an interest in the Gentiles. Or it could be simply because Greeks were notorious for having an interest in philosophy and religion. We see that in the, the book of Acts. As Paul is in Athens, uh, to cover their bases, the Greeks there in the Areopagus had put up an altar to, and they named not to the god Zeus or Apollo or any of these Roman or Greek gods. They put it to, to the unknown god just so their bases were covered. And they would sit around and they would talk and they would want to hear about any new philosophy or religion or things that were going on. And so it's perhaps that's what they're after, is just a concern about learning a little bit more. So we see this and we wonder why. And we spent some time looking at this. And I, and I just wonder if John is perhaps pointing out just the most simple and obvious truth. Should we be surprised that people from other nations are attracted to Jesus when they learn about him? In fact, wasn't that the plan of the Father? That Jesus would be proclaimed in the nations so that the peoples would know. Isn't that the promise that God made to Abraham? Through you, I will bless all nations. Through your offspring will become the fruit of that will lead to life for all nations. And that is taking place with Jesus. After all, Jesus tells us himself in John chapter 10 and verse 16 that he has sheep that are not of his fold and he must bring them to himself. John also uh, builds on this as he clues in his readers that Jesus not only died for the sins of the Jewish nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's Gentile inclusion language, and that's found in John chapter 11, verses 51 and 52. Paul understood that Jesus came not to just be a Savior for the Jews, but for all people. And so he writes in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14 that Christ, he's celebrating the fact that Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. There's now a new person, a new man in Christ. See, 
Jesus is more concerned about racial equality than we ever could be. He's more concerned about removing barriers to the gospel, barriers that drop in on our lives because of our cultural context, whatever they may be, race, whether it's religion, whether it is a matter of wealth or education or background, Jesus is here to show that the gospel is for the nations. And so I think in a real way, when Jesus sees them coming, we're never told that he actually interacted with them. We don't know. We simply don't know. But what is clear is that they want to see Jesus, and it immediately says to him, the time has come. My hour has come. And so the church sees right here that the gospel has gone. Jesus has come to do what the Father has told him to do. The inauguration of the kingdom has begun as both Jews and Gentiles are seeking him. And this, I think, fits in with John's overall purpose of his book. He concludes his gospel in chapter 20 in verse 31 by saying, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you may have life in his name. This is why our church supports missionaries, international gospel workers, whether it's Grace Mission in Haiti, or whether it's through the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, or whether it's through Teaching Truth International. It's also why we sent a team of our own people. We don't just send money, but we want to send our own people to places around the world to take the gospel. We had a team that went to Africa this summer. We've got a team that's going to Scotland uh, in late February, early March of next year. We want to do more in both supporting God, good gospel works and sending people from this church into the harvest field. And so just to make another commercial for the Mission Cafe, on the outside the wall there's a list of all the mission, missionary partners that we have right now, and there's a little biographical sketch of each one so that you can learn more about them. Stop by, read about it. Start praying for these gospel workers and pray that God would raise up even more people to take the gospel to the nations. What Jesus experienced in part, the disciples were responsible to carry forth. The fact that Gentiles now know about Jesus is an indicator. It's time for him to go and he's going to pass the baton to the apostles. And here we sit today on November 5th, 2023 as a result of the gospel being passed down from one Christian to a generation that doesn't know it. And so it's our responsibility to carry forth this good news. So we learn that the gospel is not for Jews only, but for the nations. And the Greeks' interest in Jesus proves to be a signal to him from the Father that he has accomplished his work. So it leads us to our second observation, and that we find that in verses 23 through 36. Knowing his hour had come, Jesus calls for true disciples. So in verse 23, he declared his hour has come, and by speaking in that language, it it should remind us, as we've gone through John's gospel, we heard him in chapter 2, in chapter 4, in a couple places, chapter 7, and chapter 8, speaking of his hour had not yet come. There's a a moment in time that's significant in Jesus' purpose and ministry here on earth and he said up to this point it's not that time it's not that time it's not that time and now he says 
The time has come. What is the time that he's referring to? What is behind the language of his hour? Well, it's his death, it's his resurrection, and then it's his return to heaven. All that is compassed, encompasses together to describe his glorification. And so Jesus d- speaks of this here in verse 24. We see that Jesus speaks of it. If, if a, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is going to illustrate his ministry with a common agricultural language of planting grain and seed, and then it produces a harvest. He has to die in order for him to be glorified. What is his glory? But that he willingly took on our shame. All the things you've ever done that you would never want anybody to know, Jesus took that upon himself on the cross. All the things that you regret saying and doing, Jesus went to the cross to absolve you of guilt and responsibility. And he is going to keep this hour in front of the disciples throughout chapter 13 and 17. Jesus became sin for us. He took upon himself the wrath that we earned from God and he drank all of that wrath. He emptied the cup to use an image, a metaphor. And Jesus is going to circle back to this hour in verses 27 and 31. But let's go on. Look at the illustration that he uses at verse 24. A grain of wheat must fall into the earth and die. So it's clear Jesus is saying his death is what's ahead of him. Why did he have to come? How is this going to do anything? What purpose will be accomplished with it? Well, we know that when a seed dies in the ground, that it bears fruit and it produces a crop in greater number and quantity than the seed that was sown. And so by the fruit, the death of the seed is vindicated. The seed is a good seed. It produced good fruit. And Jesus is saying his death is going to lead not only to his glorification, but to yours and mine, to all who believe in him. You remember, he's told us repeatedly, he's the bread of heaven, that he will give life to others in chapter 6. He told us that he is the one who would give up his life in chapter 11 and lay it down to save others. And here is the law of the kingdom. The law of the kingdom of God is that fruitfulness is costly. And this is going to really mean a lot as we lean in on what it means to be a disciple here in a moment. So if you're going to write anything down, write this down today. Fruitfulness is costly. It's going to cost you something to bear fruit. We know this as parents. We know this in our work. We know this in financial terms, in the terms of uh, the economy of time. If you want to do something that you want to do, you're going to have to get other stuff done in order to do it. It's going to cost you something. Jesus speaks of it in very uh, real terms. He becomes a life giver by dying. And he makes two assertions in verse 24. His death will lead to his glorification, and his death will also produce a harvest, 
as many people will believe in him. And then as you look at verses 25 and 26, we see that Jesus pivots from this illustration of what his hour is, is about to based on these things, I'm making a call for disciples, true disciples, not curiosity seekers. This isn't a freak show where you're coming to see a bearded lady or a man with two heads or some kind of weird reptile. This is not for those who are just interested. He's making a call for true followers. Look at verses 25 and 26. What does he say here? Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Well, what are we to do with that? What does that actually mean? He doesn't stop there. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Here is, here's the way of the cross. The law of the kingdom is that fruitfulness is costly. But the way of the cross is the way of discipleship. This is how we see that fruitfulness in your life as a Christian is going to cost you something because the way of the cross is the same way of discipleship. Following Jesus, we in contradiction, absolute contradiction, hear me loud and clear, if you've been asleep, move yourself. Stand up and walk around, stand in the back. It won't distract me a minute. But you need to hear this because so many people are hearing a message today that we can actually get stuff from God that makes our life so great here and now. And Jesus is saying, if you follow me, it's going to cost you stuff. It's not about me giving you stuff to make life here better. And this is a message that we have drank the Kool-Aid in, in our culture here in the United States. Christianity has lost its moorings, and we've gone adrift in this thinking that somehow, indeed, as the book title is, our best life is now. Now. If this is our best life, man, I want to check out of Christianity. I'll just be honest with you. There's been harder things because I'm a Christian than there have been that made it like so much better than it, the people around me. I mean, let's just be honest for a moment. Well, we should always be honest. But couldn't you be doing something else than sitting here listening to a long-winded preacher? I mean, the hills are calling with the sound of music. And it's a beautiful day. I mean, that's just a small example of the fact that we follow Jesus and we understand that in following Jesus, it's going to cost us something. This life is only better in the sense of all the things that Jesus promises that the sacrifices we make here are far exceedingly, gloriously surpassed by the reward we get in heaven. That's what makes this tolerable. It's not because all of a sudden we've been cured of this disease or that we've got a bank account that's this big and we couldn't spend the money if we had two lifetimes. It's not that all of our kids are well-mannered and that they are kind and polite and hardworking. The measurement of the Christian life is one of discipleship, of following Jesus regardless and, in fact, in spite of the cost. I got to preach, and let me get back to my notes. 
Jesus quickly shifts from his redemptive work in verses 23 and 24 to a call for disciples in verses 25 and 26. And you've heard the statement, what's, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If you haven't, it's a figure of speech. It simply means this. What's good for one person is good for another person. And so how you treat this person is how you should treat that person. And I think that Jesus is saying the way of the cross is the way of discipleship. And what has been true for him, he's going to go to the cross and he is literally going to be killed on a cross to die for the sins of the world. But understand, followers, you follow me that you too will suffer things, not for the sake of the sins of the world, but for simply your identification with me. And what is true for me will be true for you. And so he says, you guys, if you love me, if you are my sheep, if you are indeed sons and daughters of the light, then know this, you must adopt the same mindset that I have. You too must live with a principled self-denial, a dying to the self as your way to glorification. D.A. Carson, in his commentary, says, to love one's life is a fundamental denial of God's sovereignty, of God's rights, and a brazen elevation of self. It's an idolatrous focus on self, and that is the heart of all sin. If you are living in such a way that it's all about you, just recalibrate this morning. How is that going for you? When I was living all about me, friendships were short-lived. Most of them were because I was just using people. When it was all about me, uh, life would go from extreme highs to uh, just cliff-hanging drops and lows. There was no constancy. There was no settledness. There was no peace. Jesus is saying in these verses that self-love leads to self-destruction. As strange as that may sound to our ears, where we have heard from the day that we were born. If you're under 30, you've heard from the day you were born that you need to love yourself more. That will solve your problems. And Jesus is standing in stark contrast and saying, no, 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 no. The immediate personal benefit that you are seeking for will actually ensure your loss of the very thing that you want. You cannot take all of the experiences and all the passions and all the desires of this world and you cannot embrace them with the hope that somehow it's going to produce real good in your life for the sake of eternity. And yet, what does he say? The person who hates his life in this world. Now, you may, as a teenager, you may hate your life, right? Your parents, they're, man, if you only had my parents, Pastor James, you would pray for me a lot harder. And I know life is hard as a teenager. It's just, we've all been there, right? You look around, you talk to anybody with gray hair or no hair in this room, and you ask them, was life easier when you're a teenager? And they'll say, actually it was. Now I got responsibilities. But they, they understand the angst. 
Jesus isn't talking about that. Like a dissatisfaction with your situation. You're in a, a dead-end job. you got a boss that wants to kick you around, and life is horrible. He's not talking about that, of hating your life. I don't have the newest stuff. I don't have this. He's talking about this in this way. If you want to save your life, if you want to be known as a follower of Jesus, then you're going to actually have to spend your life following Jesus. Well, that's like a light bulb, isn't it? That means that there should be something distinctly different about my life as a follower of Jesus than the life of those who don't follow Jesus, right? Because they're all about building life here and now with the hopes that something will endure and some pleasures will come and there'll be some kind of satisfaction. And Jesus is like, my followers abandon building and putting down roots in this world because they're no, they know they're sojourners. They're just passing through. Yeah, we gotta, we got to learn the language. we got to make money to spend money and to take care of ourselves. That's not that. But where is their affection? It's on following Jesus. And that's going to define your life. It's going to shape your life. Jesus says, the person who hates his life in this world and denies himself is going to take up his cross daily and follow me. That's what he says in Mark chapter 8. And then by following Jesus, you have this guarantee. He says in verse 35 of Mark 8, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. There's never been a person in all of human history who ever lived with such joy and wholeness as Jesus he worked. He even went to parties. He worshiped and he served the Lord his God with absolute joy. You tell me, what did he lack? Nothing. Oh, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He didn't own property, okay? And why did he need to? When he wasn't here to put down roots and to create a, a homestead that would be passed down for generation after generation after generation. He came for a cross. He didn't need a view. He didn't need so, uh, solace and privacy or any of that. Jesus gave his life and so let's put an end to the idea for us as Christians that principled self-denial, which is our calling as Christians, is only going to lead to a sad existence. Let's, let's kill that myth that the, the really serious Christians are the most sad Christians. Because here's the reality. You and I may really do, we may give up things for the sake of the gospel, that's what we're called to. Uh, our family, illustration, by no means are we perfect, okay? You've, been, you've already known us long enough to know that to be true. We, we left family for the gospel. I, I don't want to forget that because that's an encouragement to me that the gospel is worth it 
and to see and a mark in my own life. Yes, I am in a real way giving my life for Jesus. We've lived in Maryland, in Pennsylvania. We've lived in Indiana, in Wisconsin. Why? We live here in South Dakota for the gospel. Now, I'm not a hero. Please understand what I'm saying. I'm not a hero. These are really small things. In every place we've been welcomed, in every place we've had a home, in every place we've eaten. I'm not suffering for Jesus. But there is a reality that we very simply can live in a way that shows our affections for Jesus trump our own desires for our comfort. What does that look like for you? I mean, is it means that, okay, I'm going to cut a streaming service so that I can give more to missions. It, does it mean I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this beautiful weather, I'm going to go into a park, and I'm going to actually look today, not at the trees, not at the ducks or the geese, not at anything else in nature, but I'm going to look for people that I could engage with the gospel. What, what self-denial might God be calling you to consider? The question is, Jesus, or not the question, but the statement is that Jesus and his followers are to be one of one mind in their undivided obedience to the Father. We see it in Jesus' life as he goes to the cross, and he's calling us to embrace this same mindset. He says to us in verse 26, where I am, there will my servant be also. And we learn two truths. Not only is Jesus speaking of the cross and his return to the Father and his promise that by returning to the Father after going through the cross that he would uh, draw people to himself, but also Jesus is saying that he will be with you and I as we follow him. He's walking this road with you, Christian. You're not alone. And look around this room. Hopefully, as you see brothers and sisters in the faith, that also will be a reinforcement to you. You are not alone. We as Christians have greater joy than our counterparts do, in spite of the fact that we are abstaining from practices that do indeed give you immediate gratifications, but ultimately lead to death. We aren't simply denying ourselves some fleshly pleasure God has replaced those desires with Jesus. And then there's this transformation where we willingly die to self in order to live for Christ. And then it produces real consequences in the here and now. And it gives us the hope of a greater experience in the day to come when we see Jesus and are like him. I need to keep going because we're running out of time. And we, we haven't even scratched the surface here. <clears throat> Jesus expects everyone who professes in faith in him to be his disciple, his follower. We talk a lot about disciples and discipleship here at South Canyon. What does that really look like? Is it a class that you can take? Is it the process of being mentored or mentoring someone in the faith? Is a disciple anyone who makes a profession of faith? Or does Christianity have like two levels? You're, you're here you just get in, and then there's the second level of super-Christians, those that are disciples. Here's a definition that's helped me 
think simply about what is discipleship. And it comes from the book, The Trellis and the Vine. Copies, again, are available in the Missions Cafe. Boy, this is a good commercial today. Um, here's, here's what I, I learned and what was really helpful. A disciple is a lifelong learner of Jesus' words and ways in order to live in growing repentance and faith. I'm going to say that again because it's, it's really a full statement. A disciple is a lifelong learner. You're not just stopping at the starting line. It's a lifelong endeavor. And what are we learning? We are learning Jesus' words and ways not just to accumulate knowledge so that we are the Bible trivia people and that we know everything about the Bible and then we can just expound our wisdom and it's completely detached theology and good doctrine from good, right living. No, we learn Jesus' words and ways in order to live in growing repentance and faith. That it actually changes us. So the things that we used to want to do or we used to do, we don't anymore. And nor do we want to. We see sin for all its ugliness and what drew us like a moth to flame has no power over us anymore because we know its way leads to death and destruction. And so it's easy to say, not interested. Discipleship. Fundamentally, is working to adopt the attitude and outlook of Jesus as you live your life in growing repentance and faith. So why is it so hard? Have you thought about that? This is the basis of our first life group question. You'll see it in, the, in your bulletin. Why is principled self-denial so hard? Why is the cost of discipleship so high? So I just want to leave this with you this morning. What would following Jesus look like, look like in your life? When's the last time you've taken stock of your discipleship to Jesus? Do your attitudes and actions, do your interests and pursuits demonstrate that you have a close relationship with Jesus that's growing? Are you obeying and submitting to him? Well, you say, uh, how can anyone really know what that looks like? Well, just look at how you're spending your time. Look at what you're spending your money on. Look at the, the content, content and context of your relationships. Is it all about you? Is there evidence in your use of those resources that you acknowledge they come from God and they are to be used for his glory? And so, church, how might we grow in our own discipleship? All believers are to be intentional about sharing the gospel with the people around them. All believers are encouraged, and we see the example in the New Testament. Join a local church where the gospel is treasured. We sang all these songs about Jesus this morning. We love Jesus because he first loved us. We love Jesus because of all the grace and the goodness that he's given to us. We know it's undeserved. That's what makes it so amazing. Why would he love us? Because he chose us. And so 
we make much of him. And the scriptures model for us to live out in a community of other believers who are making much of Jesus. Join a local church. Members of South Canyon, hey, we made a covenant together when we joined this church that we would be spiritual providers, not consumers. We would actually live our days, as long as God had us here in this body, we would live to do spiritual good to the other members of this church and through this assembly to this community. So be a provider, not a consumer. We've got, we have so many needs in this church for our children's ministry. Our Thrive, our teen ministry, could use volunteers and helpers. We've, if you're a member of this church, you have access to our life groups. Because we've designed them around discipleship only, we've kept them closed for members only. And so if you're a member and you're not plugged into a small group, this is a great way to be helped in your discipleship. It's an incubator, as it were. We've got all kinds of Bible studies that are going on, men's and women's studies. Uh, we've got uh, encourage you to participate in triads or one-to-one Bible reading. Members, we, we thank you for supporting the harvest offering, but there's also the work of this ministry. And then there's this community that we've promised to love and care for in the name of Jesus. I've spoken with the directors of the Black Hills Pregnancy Center, Love, Inc., and Cornerstone Mission. Each of those we support on a monthly basis as a church. And each of those directors have expressed to me how much they appreciate South Canyon's financial help. But then they were all, everyone, quick to say, we long to have your people come and help. You'll see in your bulletin today is a handout called Common Grace Opportunities. Some of us don't really know what's going on here in this community. We're new to Rapid City. Um, Some of us have been here so long, we've forgotten more than we've known about this community. But these are are common grace opportunities. And what that means is this is just a very simple way that we can seek the welfare of this city and get plugged in and to see how God might use us as salt and light in the community, to get out of our own walls and our own comfort zone, to live a life, the way of discipleship, a principled self-denial, evenings, weekends, volunteer. I'd encourage you, look at those. See ways in which you can plug in. The point is simply, Jesus has called us to follow him for our lives to live in a growing understanding of his attitude, his outlook, his desires, to see a refining, a transforming, a sanctifying work take place in our lives. And let me encourage you, if you need help on that, any elder on the back of your bulletin or the church office, you can call us. We would gladly make connections between you and groups of people within the church, ministry needs within the church, ministry needs within our community. Jesus has appealed to his audience to follow him. He's looking for real disciples. Not people who are just there for the show, 
and are going to fall away as soon as things get hard. We're going to have to put a pin in it for now until we get back to this passage next week. But the purpose of his hour, I encourage you to read ahead and read the rest of the chapter. Come back tonight to hear Coy open up Isaiah 53.1. Pray about these things that we've talked about. This faith is not only amazing from a truth point of view, but it's really amazing when you find yourself freed up to serve Christ unhindered by the world. And so we've got people in our congregation that, that are making way less than they could pay scale-wise because they're making choices for the kingdom. They're serving in ministries around this community. They're teaching at institutions where they're not getting paid their full value. We've got people who are volunteering their time to do good gospel things within this community. And I want to encourage that. And I want us all to learn from that so that we think Christ first, not us first. I, and it's hard. Trust me, I, I, I can empathize. There are so many struggles in my own heart of things that I want in this world. And yet I have to keep hearing the gospel come back to me and say, but Jesus is first. Seek him first and his kingdom and the stuff that's important will be added to you. But only those things that are added are only just to help you better do the job that he's called you to. So, Lord, we just thank you. This is an abrupt ending, and we just want to praise you for your grace. And even as we sing about this great God who has worked to save us, in our closing hymn, we pray, Lord, that you would just put within us an understanding of what it means to follow you. There's a big difference between following you because we have to and because we want to. This is the danger that every, this is the scary thing that keeps every parent awake at night. Are my kids participating in Christian spiritual activities because they have to or because they want to? And Lord, that's not just a danger that parents are afraid of for the sake of their children, but it's a danger in our own hearts. Let us not substitute a self-salvation for what it means for those who have been saved through the faith in Jesus to just follow him. I just pray that you would give us clarity about these things. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.